1: You, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of your ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God.
2: So help me God. <laughs> Inauguration Day 1961. The Kennedy era began with such high hopes. For Jacqueline Kennedy, that first night in the White House had been so happy and optimistic. But now it was over. And her final night, December 5, 1963, was spent burying two of her four children next to their murdered father. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Jackie, a podcast about my book that explores Jacqueline Kennedy's life from November 1963 to October 1968, her transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. After the assassination, Jackie was determined to leave the White House and its now painful memories as soon as possible. She set a goal two weeks. She packed furiously, going through Jack's belongings and giving clothes and assorted knickknacks to friends and colleagues. Meantime, the new president, Lyndon Johnson, checked in to see how she was doing.
3: Mr. President?
0: I just wanted you to know you were loved and
1: by so many and so much.
3: I'm
1: one
2: of them. LBJ and the new First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson, began inviting Jackie for dinner and various events. This would go on for months. Johnson, knowing of Jackie's immense popularity, said she could have any job she wanted, ambassador to Mexico or France, anything. But she just wanted to leave. But first, there was some business to attend to.
1: Mrs. John F. Kennedy accompanies Secret Service agent Clinton J. Hill and his family to ceremonies in Washington.
2: She attended a ceremony honoring her Secret Service agent, Clint Hill.
1: Secretary of the Treasury Douglas Dillon acts for the nation as he commends Mr. Hill for his heroism during those tragic moments in Dallas when President Kennedy was assassinated. The agent is presented with the Treasury's gold medal. During those horrible moments in Dallas, he jumped onto the President's car to shield the President and his wife.
2: Hill did not want the award. After all, the president was dead and the Secret Service had failed. But Jackie insisted that his bravery be honored. And as Hill got his gold medal, Jackie stood there with a blank, distant look on her face. She also had a joint birthday party for Caroline and John. John turned three the day of his father's funeral. Caroline turned six the day before Thanksgiving. The adult's tried to make them happy, and they did, but when John put on one of his gifts, a little soldier's uniform, and saluted again, like he famously did at his father's funeral, several of the adults broke down. But the night wasn't over. After everyone had left and the kids had gone to bed, Jackie, along with Robert and Edward Kennedy and her sister Lee, went to Arlington where two tiny white coffins lay, one on either side of JFK's grave. If you visit Arlington today, the gravestone of one child simply says daughter, the stillborn child who died in 1956. Jackie later informally would call her Arabella, and the other, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, had died just four months before, aged two days. Now on this quiet, cold night, With her husband's eternal flame flickering in the dark, Jackie brought them all together. The bishop presiding over the service saw the distress Jackie was in and kept the service short, a brief prayer, and that was it. Jackie let out a loud sigh, and the coffins were put into the cold ground next to their father. That was her final night.
3: Hello, everyone.
2: The next day, Friday, December 6th, it was time to go. But where? Where would Jackie and her kids go? The Georgetown home that she and Jack had lived in prior to the presidency had been sold. Fortunately, Avril Harriman, the former governor of New York and longtime Washington insider, had offered his mansion on N Street in Georgetown to her. She accepted. Those last moments in the White House were difficult Clint Hill, her loyal agent, remembers it like it was yesterday.
1: Earlier before they left, uh, the kids uh, posed for a photo on one of the back stairways in the house with two of the agents that were assigned to them and their nanny. And then they said goodbye to the entire staff, uh, the domestic staff. And uh, that was a little bit cheerful for the staff, mostly. Um, She held up very well. But uh, then into the car and out the Southwest Gate.
2: As they drove away, Jackie never looked back, never said a word.
1: And it was just uh, you know, a quiet ride. Uh, they were sad that they were leaving, obviously. And then when they got to the Harriman uh, house, I remember John went in first uh, before Mrs. Kennedy and Caroline and the agents were there with him. And I opened the door for Mrs. Kennedy and let her out of the car and escorted her into the house. Now, the Harrimans had moved to a hotel to provide the house to her. And they left their staff. of uh, It was a maid, a butler, and a cook.
2: It was a gorgeous home, still is, dates back to 1812, one of the oldest structures in the city. But it was hardly the White House. And it was Christmas. And here was Jackie in a strange house, devastated, grieving, and alone, with two young kids excited about Santa. Needless to say, it was a very difficult time. The nation was reeling from the assassination, stumbling, and yet adults were trying to make things as normal as possible for their kids. I asked Clint Hill to describe Jackie's mood in one word. Somber. She took them to Palm Beach, where the Kennedys usually spent Christmas.
1: Christmas in Florida was a very... Difficult time for all the agents, myself, and any of us that have been around her a lot, because she and the kids were, you know, it wasn't a normal Christmas. And her sister was there, and her sister was fragile, Prince Razzywill, and their two kids, but uh, it was still, they tried to make it as pleasant as possible for the children, because, like John, he didn't understand anyway; He didn't know what was going on. He was only three. But Caroline was six. And so uh, she, she had a, an understanding of what had transpired. And, Because of that, she was somewhat sad all the time. She missed her father. When that ball starts to move, it'll take about 40 seconds to move. And when it hits bottom, it's 1964.
2: For Jackie, 1963 couldn't end soon enough. It was the year she lost a son and gazed into her husband's eyes as he was put to death.
1: A strange, portentous year, a year laden, heavy with history and tragedy. The year of a presidential assassination, of the passing of the Pope, the year of bombings in Alabama, the year of the pressure, tragedy at sea, the submarine of the Skopje earthquake.
2: Jackie went to bed early that night, perhaps lulled to sleep by the ocean outside her window.
1: The ball's moving, moving. It's almost at the bottom of the pole. There it is. 1964
2: Finally, it was over. The new year had arrived. The local newspaper, the Palm Beach Post, did a cute thing in those days. It ran tiny little messages, cheerful and upbeat, just a line or two in the upper corner of its front page. Had Jackie seen it when she woke up on New Year's morning, it might have given her a lift. Looking back at 1963, it said, gives a feeling of confidence that 1964 will be better. It was almost as if it was written just for her. Whether it was or not, a lot of things were written for Jackie. She was bombarded with letters and telegrams from all over the world, 45,000 in just a few days after the assassination, 800,000 by early January, one and a half million in two years. Everyone wrote to Jackie, kings and queens, presidents and prime ministers, Hollywood stars, titans of business and industry, but most of all, ordinary people, and not just from the United States, but all around the world, who simply wanted to say, I'm sorry and God bless you. Perhaps the most touching of all, the most poignant, were the letters from children.
3: Dear Mrs. Kennedy, I was shocked to hear of your husband's death.
2: Like this letter written by Nancy Taylor of Hazel Park, Michigan, nearly six decades after she wrote to Jackie, she read her letter again.
3: I was coming home from school and was feeling fine. My mother had tears in her eyes when I saw her. I asked her what was the matter. They didn't tell me about the tragedy at school. My first thought was that it wasn't true. I wish it wasn't. But I turned to her and her eyes had truth in them. I broke down and, and cried. It was like a nightmare for the whole nation. The world died a little when John Fitzgerald Kennedy died. This is something I will never forget. I'm 11 years old. I wrote Mr. Kennedy a letter after the election to tell him how happy I was that he had won. And when I was looking at the funeral on television, I cried through the whole thing. It was so sad. I still have the letter that he sent me. I will show it to my children. When I grow up, President Kennedy will never be forgotten in the United States of America. Here's truly Nancy Taylor.
2: Nancy, when you read that, all these years later, what goes through your mind?
3: It's like you can see it, like it's in front of you. You know, I remember it so, so vividly.
2: A million and a half letters. On January the 14th, Jackie decided to say thank you. It was the first time she had spoken in public since her husband's murder.
3: I want to take this opportunity to express my appreciation for the hundreds of thousands of messages, nearly 800,000 in all, which my children and I have received over the past few weeks. The knowledge of the affection in which my husband was held by all of you has sustained me, and the warmth of these tributes is something I shall never forget.
2: Whenever I can bear to, I read them. The letters were well-intentioned, of course, cathartic for the writers, but for Jackie, perhaps not. This was a common dynamic at this point in her life. She was trying to forget Dallas to put the pain behind her, and yet she's deluged by all these letters. Again, here's the key sentence from her statement.
3: Whenever I can bear to, I read
2: them. Whenever she could bear to, she read them, but she couldn't bear to. Jackie's personal secretary during this period was a woman named Mary Gallagher, who told me years ago how much Jackie was suffering. I didn't record that conversation, but in 1969, Gallagher wrote about it and said Jackie was lonely and deeply depressed. There's a Jackie quote in that book. At night, she said, I just drown my sorrows in vodka. Meantime, here's another Jackie biographer, Barbara Leeming.
3: The other thing that, that that was terrible for her was that she suffered, like many of the soldiers do, from what you call survivor's guilt. She couldn't understand why she had survived and Jack had not. And she was overwhelmed with a sense that she should have been able to save him. She would endlessly go over things saying, you know, if only I had turned my head A second earlier, if only I had recognized that it was not a backfire from the motorcycle of one of the policemen, but a gunshot. I could have saved him. Of course she couldn't have saved him. But with trauma, it's easier sometimes for somebody to believe that they were guilty of failing to save someone than to recognize that you were absolutely helpless to do anything.
2: Jackie would drink to forget. She slept long hours. But sleep brought no respite. There were flashbacks and nightmares, and the nightmare was real. It happened. It was burned into her brain. There was no escape. It was a horrible time. Some additional insight into Jackie's turmoil came from Caroline Kennedy herself. According to a British TV documentary, Caroline told her teacher, sister Joanne Fry, that, quote, Mommy cries all the time and quote every morning when i go and get in bed with mommy she's crying this was all playing out behind closed doors americans understood that jackie was going through a deeply painful time they did not understand however how completely overwhelming it was jackie kept reliving the assassination over and over again an endless loop in her mind day and night Meantime, she left the Harriman house, her temporary home, and bought a new house just across the street at 3017 N Street Northwest. She needed some financial help from the Kennedy family and moved in in late January. She made some renovations. The prior owners had a gun mounted over a fireplace that came down. It was a lovely home, but not for long. If you've ever seen the house, it sits on a narrow street. You can peer into the windows, so the privacy and security that Jackie and her kids needed was missing. Here's Clint Hill.
1: The press wasn't that intrusive, I didn't think. And the general public initially wasn't so bad, but it, it grew. It got worse and worse and worse almost every day. And then when the tours started, then it really got bad and uh, so the agents would have to be there to make sure nobody come up the steps, because in the front of the house there were about 10 or 12 steps up to the ground level of the house itself. So there was a good point where you could uh, prevent people from coming up there, but uh, it just got to the point where any time you come out that front door, you were confronted by this large number of people.
2: Jackie was terrified. Kennedy biographer Larry Sabato says she felt like a prisoner,
0: she was being smothered. She's trying to live in that house over in Georgetown, and the public, with great sympathy for her and great affection, was practically smothering her. Uh, they were trying to see in the windows. She she had to keep the curtains closed constantly because someone would pop up in her window. It, it's horrible, and the, of course, celebrities tell you this all the time that that uh, the public uh, goes way too far and they don't quite understand and yet celebrities today at least and really for decades have had the money uh, to have a a small army of guards to maintain their privacy Uh, Jackie Kennedy had just Clint Hill she had one Secret Service person for about a year
2: That was it. And these people hung out for hours, waiting for a glimpse of Jackie or her kids, their cameras hanging from their necks. Some would have picnics. Others climb trees trying to get a better view. One person even managed to steal the house number off the front porch. Meantime, Jackie was stuck inside, dealing with nightmares day and night, crying all the time. Her depression got worse. We'll hear more about this later. In that first terrible winter, Jackie had another problem. She knew that books would be written about the assassination. She couldn't stop anyone from writing a book, but she could refuse to cooperate with authors. She and Robert Kennedy then came up with an idea. Why not select one author and cooperate only with that person? Theodore White, the reporter from Life magazine who had helped Jackie craft the Camelot imagery that I talked about in a prior episode, he declined. Jackie and Robert then approached a professor at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. His name was William Manchester. Manchester had written a book about JFK in 1961, Portrait of a President, which both JFK and Jackie liked. You know who else liked that book, by the way? Lee Harvey Oswald, who checked it out of the New Orleans Public Library when he was living there and bouncing from job to job. But I digress. At first, Manchester didn't want the job. He was up to his neck with another book. He asked his secretary, how can I say no to Mrs. Kennedy? The answer, you can't. And so began a three-year saga that resulted in one of the best-selling books of the entire decade— but also a book that sparked a nasty fight that nearly killed Manchester and dented Jackie's once untouchable reputation. We'll hear more about this in a future episode. As for our next episode.
0: It it was a horrible period and she couldn't share this with many people. And I have to say this, I don't think other than Bobby Kennedy, the Kennedys were very sympathetic that they were suffering, too, because of the loss of JFK. But this was a more stoic family.
2: Jackie, on her own, isolated and depressed, contemplates ending it all. Special thanks this week to Clint Hill, Nancy Taylor, Larry Sabato, and Joan Herman, host of the radio show, Conversations with Joan, for the segments with Barbara Lehman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll check out my new book on Jackie between her two marriages. It's called Jackie, Her Transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. Available everywhere, and if you're enjoying this show, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other history fans find it. Jackie is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. My special thanks to producer Hannah Ray Leach. Sound designer and engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, and executive producers Michael DeAloia and Gerardo Orlando. Show theme music by Josh Perlman Hall. Visit evergreenpodcasts.com for a transcript and more info on the show. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
0: The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War. But half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains discuss president mckinley admiral dewey the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk theodore roosevelt's presidency check out our show ohio versus the world on the evergreen podcast network for our new episode about america's
3: most forgotten war now back to the show